You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2016. Today's episode is titled, Trading Up. Management must recognize that the primary objective of business is not to produce temporal wealth. Business exists first and foremost as a vehicle to produce true wealth. Temporal wealth, such as money, is simply a tool that management should use to trade up to acquire true wealth. True wealth is manifested in workers' lives in traits such as wisdom, righteous living, excellent reputation, respect, and godliness with contentment. To build an organization focused on acquiring true wealth requires management who is willing to invest temporal wealth in training to develop true wealth in stakeholders who will then produce excellent value for those the organization serves. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, True Wealth. Well, this morning we want to continue our discussion of the book of James by looking at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And uh, James, I think, is uh, one of the rich books of Scripture that's largely overlooked because it uh, its focus is different from almost any other book. As you look at the Pauline epistles and the epistle of Peter and John's epistles, you see a lot of doctrinal content. But when you get to James, what you have now is really wisdom. You have the application of the doctrine, the implications of the doctrines, the corollaries that flow from the doctrines. So James is writing to a group of people. These are Jewish people that have been scattered throughout the uh, the known world at that time, and they were scattered as part of the judgment of God for the rejection of God that they practiced in the Old Testament days. So here they are in the first century. They're still scattered. They were never regathered. Although there was a remnant that was regathered, the, the country was never totally regathered, and so they remained scattered and dispersed. And when they were dispersed, you know, they still retained the tradition of the Jewish heritage. So synagogues sprung up in various parts of the, uh, of the world to keep these Jewish people trained in the Old Testament scripture. So they were very knowledgeable of the Old Testament. So James found, found it, uh, not unnecessary to really talk much about about the doctrinal foundation, he will allude in certain places as we go through in the book to certain doctrinal truths, but he's largely going to focus on what it means to live under the Lordship of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? We, we're very quick to point out that Jesus is Savior, which he definitely is, but Jesus is also Lord, and whoever is Lord is in charge, and our job is to be obedient to the Lord, and what we have to do is be very clear about the gospel here, because the gospel gets very confused and muddled in the minds of many people. They think when you start talking about lordship or you talk about obedience, now you're talking about works as a way to be saved. That is not true. We are not talking about working your way into God's approval or God's acceptance. We're talking about receiving Christ and the salvation that comes to him freely as a gift in which we merit nothing We do nothing to get it. It's given to us freely as a gift. But once you've been given this gift, how do you know that you have that gift? Well, the way you know it is faith rises up in your heart and a desire to now obey Christ rises up as well. So we have a responsibility once we've come to Christ to step up into a disciplined lifestyle. Some people call this the doctrine of cooperation. Christ has done all this work on our behalf and now empowers us, and it's our job to cooperate with the Spirit that's at work in us. 
That is the way Spro looks at it. That's probably a valid way to look at it. Uh, I know my my spiritual father that taught this doctrine, he did not teach cooperation quite like that, but he certainly recognized the importance of being disciplined and and you know being responsible for obedience to what God had commanded us to do in scripture. So we're we're talking in this book largely about what it means to be under the lordship of Christ, recognizing that our obedience to Christ does not save us, it simply validates that we are saved. So in this discussion in James, he starts out beginning to talk about trials and tribulations, which was clearly a big deal to the early Christians. And then he moves into the wisdom that you need to handle trials and tribulations and how God is rich in wisdom. He is a good God. When you ask him, he will give you what you need to know and as long as you ask in faith. So he's given us a number of imperatives up to this, this point, actually five up to this point. And now he's going to give us the sixth imperative. And the sixth imperative has to do with being metaphysically aware, specifically of money. You see, one of the great trials and tribulations of life is going to be money. How do you view money? How do you view temporal wealth? What's, what's the purpose of temporal wealth? And how do we properly, you know, use temporal wealth? So we have to start by seeing it correctly and responding to it correctly, and then we can live, you know, correctly in light of God's definition of money and temporal assets. So here's the text, James 1, 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So as we look specifically at the exegesis of this text, we see the trial of temporal wealth becomes our centering piece here. It's the focal point of this discussion because he's continuing to talk about trials and tribulations and he knows that this is going to be a big deal and it's a big deal not only in the first century it's a big deal today it's always been a big deal how to properly view tangible temporal wealth now i talk about money as temporal wealth because something that's temporal is temporary that's the sense of it money has value only in this existence and Peter, Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 6. He points out that we bring nothing in and we will take nothing out. When you're born, you didn't bring any money with you. When you die, you don't take any money with you. So it's temporal in that sense. It's a tool to be used during our lives. That's it. And so when you see that, you begin to recognize that money is, doesn't measure things. Money is just a tool that facilitates obedience to God. And some of us have callings that require more temporal assets than others. You look at Jesus' life, he did not need a lot of temporal assets. So at the end of his life, when he's really doing his most significant work, then he was living off the charity of women. He, He did not have a lot of savings. Now, there's nothing wrong with savings. We should have savings. 
But the point is he didn't need a lot of temporal resources. Now, you may have a calling that requires you to have a lot of temporal resources. For example, if you're called to build a big organization, uh, someone, you know, like, uh, you know, somebody that built uh, Service Master, for example, you know, Marion Wade. He needed a lot of temporal resources to build that organization, and God provided that to him. So there have been many people in the history uh, of the world who have been provided, you know, large sums of temporal resources to do large projects. So it depends on your calling. Whatever your calling is, God, who is the ultimate investment banker, the source of all resources, all temporal resources, indeed all resources, you know, provides what he needs you to have to fund his will in your life. And we know that from Matthew 6.33. When we seek first his kingdom and we do it according to his righteousness, then he meets all of our needs. So that's our job. Our responsibility is always to seek first what is it the Lord wants? What does the king want? And how does the king want it done? His will done his ways is our agenda. So temporal wealth is a huge trial, has always been a huge trial. We also have to recognize he hits on a, a very important point here of ontological, ontological equality. Now, the whole idea of ontology has to do with being, the nature of being. And ont- ontological equality basically says that physical or temporal wealth does not define your being. Your ontological equality has to do with your relationship with Christ. Everyone who knows Christ is ontologically equal. And there's even a level of ontological equality, you know, with those who don't know Christ. We're all human beings created by God. There's ontological equality there. But then once you come to Christ, you have ontological equality with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in that you now you've been born again, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and you're ontologically equal to every other believer that's ever existed. So for us to see these things clearly, we have to be metaphysically aware. We have to see things from God's perspective. Metaphysical awareness means beyond the tangible, beyond the physical realm. We don't measure things based on physical appearances. We measure things on God's definitions of reality and how he's made things to work. So these are important concepts that that are shown to us in this text that James leans upon to help us get an understanding of how to properly see temporal wealth. He starts out saying, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. This idea for lowly is a is really the word for humility. This is a humble brother. Humble in the sense that he does not have much in the way of temporal assets. He's, he's saying that if whether you have temporal assets or not, it's really not very relevant. And for those who have a, a meager amount of temporal resources like Jesus had, then your glory is not in the temporal assets. Your glory is in the reality that you know him and you've been born again and you're connected to him. Now, the opposite, those who have plenty, and the word rich here is literally the word plenty or an abundance, uh, you know, then it's, there's an implied glory here too. You have to glory now in your humiliation in the sense that your wealth does not buy you a ticket out of death. You are going to die, period. And there's nothing you can do about that but 
you glory in the fact that you are spiritually rich because you have relationship with the person that gives you eternal life. So that's the key, is the richness is in Christ. So he's contrasting the two extremes, you know, lack of temporal wealth with an abundance of temporal wealth to make it make us aware that ontological equality is the key thing here. And recognizing that we all have, if we know Christ, we have that ontological equality in Christ that gives us victory over sin and death. Nothing else will. Money never will. It cannot. And so he goes on to try to really drill this point down very clearly, particularly for the rich, because, you know, people tend to exalt the rich. They tend to honor the rich. They tend to think the rich have it together and, uh, you know, know what they need to do. And it, the rich, the deception of the rich is great. One of my uh, spiritual sons is taking a, a seminary class. And in the seminary class, there was a pastor from a megachurch come speak to them. And this pastor made this comment. This is what was reported to me. He said that one of the ways that we know we're in the will of God is that we have money to do what we're doing. And now my spiritual son has had enough training to know that, whoa, what's going on with that one? And he recognized what Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 say about how the the ungodly people can have material wealth. They can have temporal resources. So if you measure things by temporal resources, you are likely to be deceived. And he immediately recognized the deception of this megachurch pastor. And I've had a chance to interact some with some of the senior leadership in that particular megachurch, and I see indeed that deception is there, at least from my perspective. So I confirmed what I believe my disciples saw, that, yeah, there's a false understanding of reality at work there that's going to lead this congregation astray. It's just a matter of what it's going to look like and when. So we have to keep very clear, you know, what wealth is. And so he's going to spend extra time focusing on the fact that temporal wealth really doesn't have long-term value. It does not deal with sin and death. So he goes on to say, for no sooner has the sun risen with its burning heat than it withers with the grass. It, its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. So you see, really making the point here, temporal wealth does not deal with the problem of death. It cannot fix the death issue. The only thing that will fix it is Christ. Christ has the crown of life, and he will give us the crown of life. You don't get it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's given to you freely. So it's interesting how he phrases this, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. This word here for pursuits, it's it's a reference to your lifestyle. It's a reference to your strategies. It's reference to your choices. So all the various things you're doing in life, the positioning you do to gain power, you know, the, the strategies you execute to, to make wealth. All these things, you're gonna get, you're gonna get real focused on those because you're gonna view that as really, really important and you're flat gonna miss what's metaphysically important. Wealth is simply a tool to facilitate the will of God. That's what it is. You, you make it more than that, you will be deceived and you will miss what God wants to do in your life. You have to see wealth correctly or you will be deceived. 
Then he talks about what's, what a blessed man looks like. What is this? Blessed. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, this word blessed is interesting. There are actually two words in the Greek language that refer to blessed. One of them is a word that is refers to a blessed word. And a blessed word would be, you know, when you speak a blessing over someone, you know, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord protect you, the Lord guide and direct you. So these are just examples of blessings that we have in life. And so that's one way to bless people. Another way to bless people is to is to you know, help them see the value of enduring suffering. This word here, uh, it's the Greek word that it's makareos is the word, and it's a word that implies spiritual blessings, but not necessarily due to happy circumstances. So some examples of how this word is used, if you look at the Beatitudes, you'll see things like, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, blessed are those when people revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. So you can see uh, being hungry and thirsty, and this, that, that's not a physically pleasant thing. Mourning is not a physically pleasant thing. Being reviled and persecuted, those are not physically pleasant things. So circumstances is not, not the key here. The blessing has to do being metaphysically aware of what's really going on. And so when when you mourn, you're mourning for truth, for righteousness, for the will of God to be done. You know, those kinds of mournings, those are really blessings because your heart is knit to Christ, to the important things. When you are handling persecution and being being picked on, being bullied correctly, well, this is this is something that's a blessing. Because if you see it metaphysically, you recognize God's at work and he is going to transform you through this. So what he, when he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, he uses the correct word here. He uses the word that says, these temptations are not necessarily going to be pleasant circumstances, but they're going to be a blessing if you can see them metaphysically, if you can see God's perspective and how he's going to use these to change you, perfect you, to purify you. So blessed is the man who endures temptation or trials. For when he has been approved, and this word approved here is a word dokimazo. And dokimazo means to validate. It means to validate the genuineness of something. So when you're in a trial or temptation, part of what's going on is the validation of what's genuine in you. Is Christ really in you? And one of the ways you'll see it is how you handle a trial or tribulation. So that's one of the purposes, is to validate the reality of Christ in you. And as that validation appears, now what he doesn't say, but clearly what he would agree with, it's it validates that you have been regenerated, that you've been born again, and now you're in the process of growing and maturing in Christ, and you've matured enough to where this test, you know, does not take you down. You're able to stand in this test and to prove that you are genuinely a believer in Christ. And so that now qualifies you for Receiving the crown of life. Now you gotta hear this real carefully. The, you know, your, your standing in the test as a believer doesn't qualify you. It reveals that Christ in you is what qualifies you. 
It's the Christ that qualifies you. It's not your standing. Your standing simply reveals that you're in Christ, that you have been born again, that you truly are a believer. And you will receive the crown of life. That is a future tense, will receive. That is indeed what it means. And it's the indicative mood in the Greek language, which means it's a fact. It is a fact that you will receive the crown of life, which speaks of eternal life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Now, we have to, again, keep in mind what this con- this looks like a condition. It looks like, well, you're not going to get the crown of life, life unless you do something. Well, again, the doing here, you loving, and by the way, the word love here is a participle. And it means it's it's an act. It's a present participle. Present tense in the Greek language refers to continuous action. So it's the continuous act of loving him. And it's agape love, which is sacrificial living. So a continuous act of sacrificially doing the will of God according to the ways of God, that is what validates that you've been born again, and that's the basis on which you will receive the crown of life. So you see a continuity between the three tenses of salvation here. The past tense, when you were saved, you were born again through the sovereign work of God, which you did nothing to deserve. You are regenerated. You are brought to life spiritually. And then you are sanctified. You begin to grow and mature in Christ. And that's the process of learning to obey Christ. And ultimately, you will be, in the future, glorified in Christ. That is, you are perfected, totally perfected. The sanctification process is completed, and you are totally perfected. We don't believe that happens in this life. We believe it happens in the next life. So this life is a process of growing and maturing in Christ. So those people who demonstrate by virtue of their life today a life of obedience to God are validating the genuineness of their faith in Christ and they with the fact that they will in the end be glorified and receive the crown of life. So that's the picture of what real blessing is and why it's so important that we walk in these trials and tribulations correctly, seeing metaphysically what God is doing to transform us and recognizing that he is trying to perfect us through these circumstances of life. And just quickly, let me remind you, the way you know somebody loves Christ is very simple. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obedience is the mark of love, agape love. So that's what you're looking for. Does somebody want to grow and mature and progressively obeying Christ? It's the very thing talked about in what we call the Great Commission. And I think all of you know I don't like that terminology. I think it's very misleading. It is a, To me, it's a discipleship mandate. That discipleship mandate gives us, you know, two things to do. As we're making disciples, we first, we baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know who to baptize? We're looking for those who bear the marks of being a Christian. And then we train them. We train those people to be obedient to the commands of Christ. So discipleship is largely about training. Baptism is an event that happens fairly quickly. But training is a process that happens the rest of your life. And so that is what we're called to do. And as we are training disciples to do, to obey Christ, we're releasing the purpose of God in their lives so they can do what God has created them to do in the first place. So we got to be very clear that the call to Christ is a call to discipleship. It's a call to obedience, 
and we express our love for God. And remember, love is the, the mark of the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We express that love by obeying his commands, and that validates that we really do know Christ. So a rich text here. Let me just give you some some takeaways here. First, um, theologically, it reminds us again of the temporal wealth and eternal wealth and the difference between the two. Eternal wealth is the wealth of eternal life. It's all that's associated with eternal life. In fact, the scripture talks about a number of things that are more valuable to us than, than tangible wealth, than temporal wealth. Things like righteousness, things like wisdom, you know, things like reputation, respect, uh, hope in God, uh, godliness. These are examples of true wealth that exceed the value of temporal wealth. These are the things we should really be focusing on. How do I acquire true wealth? And true wealth is obviously eternal wealth. That's what makes it important. And then I mentioned earlier the tenses of salvation. The past tense of salvation is that I've been delivered from the, the power of sin. And the present tense is I'm being delivered, excuse me, I've been, been delivered from the penalty of sin. That's the past tense. The present tense is I'm being delivered continuously and progressively from the power of sin. And eventually I will be re, re, removed completely, be delivered completely from the presence of sin. So those are the three tenses of salvation. And again, you can see those. Two of them specifically referred to here, sanctification in the present tense and glorification in the future tense. And inferred or implied is the past tense. You couldn't even have this discussion if you haven't experienced regeneration. So theologically, we want to be very clear on how this works, and we want to apply this. And one of the great ways to apply this is to trade up. Trade up. How do I trade up? How do I begin to think profoundly enough about resources to know that eternal wealth is far more valuable than temporal wealth? How do I do that? Well, that takes real discipline. It takes really valuing what God values. It takes putting your emphasis, your focus in life on the things that are real wealth, on wisdom, righteousness, a great reputation, respect, disciples, hope in God, godliness with contentment. These are things that are specifically said in Scripture are more valuable than money, more valuable than temporal wealth. So I didn't want to use money, my temporal wealth, now to trade up and get these things. So being, you know, valuing being in a relationship with godly, godly men and women who can help me gain real wealth, that is, we should be spending money to do that. That should be a no-brainer. And yet what I see today is people spend money on temporal things, and when they see a spiritual opportunity to grow, they balk because it costs money. It's like, wow, you know, what's it worth to you to gain real wealth? They seem to have no concept of that. And so they wind up, you know, choosing temporal wealth. So this is where we've got to learn to really change our thinking. We have to learn to trade up. And so just a real simple example uh, of how this works. One time I was talking to one of my, my uh, kind of, I wouldn't call him a spiritual son, but you see, he could be a spiritual son. I just can't tell how that's going to develop. But I was asking him if he was going to go attend a certain event that I felt like would really be a blessing for him and facilitate his growth and maturity. And he said he didn't have the money. And I, my question to him is, well, do you have, do you have the money to eat? 
Well, he said, well, yeah, you got to eat. And I said, so you're putting eating ahead of spiritual food. Physical food is more important to you than spirit than spiritual food. That's what you're saying. And he said, well, I, you know, I guess so. He was kind of stuttering and stammering with that. I said, you understand Jesus didn't think that way, which he didn't like hearing that at all. I said, well, just take a look at, at where he was in the desert being tested, trials and tribulations, 40 days and 40 nights with no food. The devil comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, turn those stones to bread. Now, Jesus was the son of God. He could have turned those stones to bread. There's no question about that. But he said, instead, he said, not going to do it. Man does not live by bread alone. Instead, he lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Spiritual food is more important than physical food. And Jesus was in the midst of a severe test when he said that. And so I laid that out in front of him, and you could tell that really bothered him because he was not prepared for that level of challenge. And most of us aren't. Most of us are going to cook going to capitulate to our 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 human frailties and to our personal passions and our personal appetites and that gets fed first and it and it as long as that's happening it's going to be hard for us to make right choices we've got to be willing to sacrifice the physical the tangible the the pleasures convenience and comforts and trade up to real wealth and really sacrifice to gain real wealth. That is a very tall calling for all of us, very challenging calling. Well, James is calling us up. He said, we've got to get real clear. Whether you have a little or a lot, doesn't matter. What matters is that you handle the trials and tribulations with metaphysical awareness so you can validate who you are because this puts you in line. This shows that you're in line to receive the crown of life at the end of your life. And what is more valuable than that? Isn't that what why we have come to Christ, to have eternal life, to enjoy victory over death? He's the only one that can do that. Why would we not embrace that and walk in that reality? May the Lord give us grace to do that in Jesus' name.